I'm going to be talking primarily about undergraduates. The statistics I'll be giving you um, are primarily about undergraduate students here in the United States. And some of the data I'll be presenting to you um, is from, uh, for example, the United States Department of Education, which uses your tax dollars to do a very good job collecting information from colleges and universities about students. Um, I'll also be sharing with you some information uh, from a book I co-edited last year uh, called Generational Shockwaves and the Implications for Higher Education. Um, and the book deals with issues related to both students as well as faculty and staff in higher education and how different generations, everything from the silent generation of World War II up to baby, baby boomers, which I just made the tail end of myself, onto Generation X and the most recent generation, which I'll be talking about called the Millennials and how higher education is coping with them in various ways. So you're welcome to take a look at this uh, afterwards. Um, Looking around the room, many of us, if you had gone to college, went to college probably when we thought about college being for the typical 18 to 19 to 22 year old, graduated from high school, uh, maybe three months later went on to college, attended full time, usually at a four year college or university, lived on campus, and then went through, spent four years, maybe if somebody was a real straggler, they might have taken an extra semester or two, and finished and got a bachelor's degree in four or so years. That's not the portrait of the typical college student that we have today. College today is very different. Um, and let me give you some, some data, as I said, to, to try to highlight that for you. Um, first of all, looking at undergraduates, almost a third of these undergraduates are over the age of 25. Now, within the area of higher education research, we use a label called traditional college students. And those traditional college students are the ones that I had described to you. Transition right from high school to college, uh, usually in the 18 to 22, 23-year age range, go to school full-time, mostly live on campus, though some don't. Anybody who doesn't fall into that pattern is what we call a non-traditional student. So for example, as I said, 31% are over the age of 25 or 25 or over, so fall into that non-traditional category by virtue of their age. Um, the most recent data tell us that only 15% of students actually lived on campus in dormitory housing. Um, again, uh, many of us think back on our college experiences, or most of the people we interacted with were living in a dormitory. Even if you just take the traditional age students under the age of 25, uh, only about one quarter of those live on campus. So the vast majority of students are living elsewhere, whether it's with their parents or living in one of the apartments on Beaver Canyon and commuting to campus. 57% of students today are female. Uh, this has been one of the big sea changes in higher education. One of the great successes has been getting women into higher education. Um, and if you go back a couple generations, the majority of students were men. Today, the majority are female, and that proportion is increasing. 37% uh, of students are part-time. So less than two-thirds of the students who are walking around our college campuses pursuing a bachelor's or an associate's degree are full-time students. 37% uh, are non-white. This is very reflective of what's happening in the demographics in our country in that the fastest growing populations are minority populations, particularly Asian Americans and Latinos. Uh, we also have a pretty good group of international students. About 5% of the students here in the United States are international students, meaning they've come from other countries and are not either citizens or uh, on a green card. Uh, and, and one of the most interesting figures, I think, that catches most people by surprise, and we were having a conversation about this before the session, is that 42% of undergraduates are enrolled in community colleges. 
this, as I said, catches most people by surprise because community colleges are often described to many of us as the invisible part of higher education in this country. When people think about going to college or going to university, they think about something like Penn State here at University Park, and they don't think about the community colleges, and yet almost half of all undergraduates are enrolled in a community college. Some of them do ultimately go on to a four-year institution, but the vast majority of these students start at a community college and never go elsewhere in higher education, either because they choose not to or because the opportunity isn't there for them. So if we take this portrait of what I call traditional age college students, under the age of 24, uh, going to school full time, this represents only about half of all college students today. So the vast majority of students fall into this pattern that's very different from what was experienced a generation or two ago. Uh, one of the big challenges we have in higher education, and, and you certainly read a lot about this in the newspapers, and President Obama has highlighted this, is that we have a real problem with students finishing college degrees. Uh, we have a pretty good, compared to other countries, record in terms of getting students into college, whether it's transitioning directly from high school, as I said, or going back to college as adults. But we have a much worse record on, compared to other countries on getting students through to some kind of a credential, whether it's a bachelor's degree, an associate's degree at the end. So for example, only 36% of students who start their college degrees in a four-year institution actually complete a bachelor's degree within four years. Uh, and this number has been going down over the years as we've been expanding access. Fewer and fewer students actually adhere to that pattern of going to college, staying in full-time, and completing. Only 57% complete in six years. So even if you stretch out the period of time and allow students time to take a semester off or perhaps go part-time, only a little over half of those students will complete their degree within six years. Now, when we take a look at the data on uh, students and their uh, transitions through the educational pipeline, there are a number of patterns that are fairly consistent. consistent. So for example, uh, if you look at who graduates from high school, after graduating from high school, who goes to college, who stays enrolled and persists through, and then ultimately who completes a degree? Well, first of all, women are much more likely to do that than men. And if you look in particular at African Americans and Latinos, the two fastest growing populations in this country, that's even more true of those populations. We have a huge deficit of both Latino males and African American males in higher education in this country. And if they get into college, they rarely persist through and get a degree. Students from wealthier families as compared to poorer families are much more likely to follow that traditional path and get a bachelor's degree. Um, and then, as I said, white and Asian American students are much more likely to do this as compared to students from minority groups. So that's sort of a statistical picture of what's happening in higher education in the country. And, and again, for those of us who might have gone to college, in my case, 30 or to be truthful, 30 plus years ago, um, the picture is very different. And even if you walk around the, the campus of Penn State here down the road, you're not going to get a real picture of what higher education in this country looks like because that's not the norm anymore. Uh, the, the young, relatively young, full-time student, especially if they're living on campus, persisting through and getting a degree in four years, that's simply not the norm anymore. So to move away from the data, and now let me draw on um, some of the research that was done by my colleagues who contributed chapters to this book. Here's what the portrait of the millennial generation tends to look at. And, and I'll warn you that these tend to be very much generalizations. They are research-based on surveys of students and interviews with students. But again, here I'm really generalizing. And this doesn't describe every single college student out there. But if you, you think about now, going back to this picture of the student who's transitioning from high school and going right to college and attending full-time and hopefully getting a degree, they fall into this millennial generation. And the definition used by one of my authors in here of the millennials are those born since 19. 1982. 
and in uh, cohorts, birth cohorts since then. So the characteristics they use to describe these students are, first of all, millennials are multitaskers. Now we're all, if any of you have children who are teenagers or college students, we're all familiar with this one, right? They sit there and they might be, and I'll, I'll speak from my own experience with my daughter and my wife will attest to this one. It amazes me how she can sit there, be watching TV, have her computer laptop in front of her and sometimes ostensibly doing homework or more likely chatting with Facebook on friends, with her friends. And then she has her cell phone next to her, which of course is used not for making phone calls among this generation, but for texting. Um, some of you may have seen a story yesterday that says that the average teenager uh, produces either sending or receiving about 100 texts a day. Uh, and uh, that I know from experience from my cell phone bills, that's just about the norm, at least for our daughter. Um, she's been averaging somewhere in the ballpark of two to 3,000 texts a month, uh, which is why not too long ago we changed to an unlimited texting plan or we were not going to have the money to send her to college and be one of these millennial students. Uh, these students are very focused on technology. Um, they are much more adept with technology than earlier generations. Technology is much more available to them and many different forms of technology. As I said, everything from uh, iPods to laptops to, <clears throat> to cell phones, um, they're much more adept. Uh, they use this technology much more than earlier generations um, and they want to use that technology in their higher education much more than earlier generations. One of the interesting findings is that uh, this generation of students tends to be more self-centered and more interested in their own satisfaction rather than societal outcomes and societal issues. And there's very good and pretty strong research to show that, uh, for example, uh, UCLA has been surveying students now for uh, over 40 years. Uh, and what they do is they survey incoming freshmen and they ask them lots of questions about attitudes and what their goals are. And students today are much more likely to answer that they're in college to make money for themselves and become rich and much less likely to answer that they're in college to do well for society, which was a much more common answer back in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, these students are rapid communicators. Um, I, I talked already about texting and tweeting, uh, and they expect people to respond at the speed of light to them. Uh, so any of you who are faculty will know what student expectations are for responding to emails. I will get an email from one of my students, and if I don't respond within an hour, I'll get the proverbial, have you gotten my email? <laughs> And I resist the temptation to say yes, and I'm ignoring it for now, but I have gotten your email, and I, I assure you it is sitting in my inbox, and it will be gotten to at some point. They expect people to communicate, whether it's faculty members, uh, as quickly to them as their friends do when they send them a text or a tweet. Uh, they tend to be somewhat less respectful and more challenging of authority. Now, this might sound a little bit uh, strange to those of you who grew up in the 60s and know about the countercultural revolution in the 60s, but the survey data bear out that, in fact, students today are less respectful of authority, and some have speculated it's because of the way that technology has helped break down authority. <laughs> so the student who may have been reluctant to come to my office and speak to me as a faculty member uh, has no qualms whatsoever about sending me a, a chatty email and, and calling me Don rather than Professor Heller that when I was in college we never would have done something like that. Uh, one of the other findings is that um, they tend to be catered to very much by their parents and have their parents involved in their lives in a way that many of us did not. And the term that's been coined, and at, one of these days I'm going to track down who came up with this term and I haven't been able to do it yet, is helicopter parents. Right? You've probably heard this one before. Uh, you know, the parents hovering over their children, even when they've left the nest and come to the university. And I hear it now from colleagues about grad school, a friend of mine who told me that he was interviewing a student for uh, their doctoral program in, in education, and the student actually showed up with her mother. 
there for the interview. And we joke about this among 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds and undergraduates, but actually now we're seeing it with people applying to a doctoral program to become faculty or leaders in our society. And this young woman showed up with her mother because her mother wanted to make sure it was the right fit for her daughter. Um, so uh, I think one indication of this is Penn State recently created something called the Parents Program here, and you may have read about this, where there now is a, an office, and I believe it's a joint effort of both the development office, because the development office sees parents as a source of income for gifts, and also student affairs. So the idea is to be a central point of focus for a parent who has some kind of issue, whether their student, their child has called them up and said, I'm failing my class, I don't know what to do. And now the, you can call the parents program and say, what should I do? And the parents program will be the advocate for the parents. Um, so parents are much more involved in their students' lives in ways that they never would have been. Um, most of my colleagues can tell you about uh, phone calls or emails they've received about parents from parents about their children and their children's performance in class. Uh, and in most cases, we fall back on saying that federal law doesn't allow us to discuss your student's performance with you. I suggest you talk to your child about that performance. Um, and then the, the, the last characteristic, the major characteristic, is that the research shows that students in college today are much more focused during those four years or six years or whatever it takes on preparing themselves for work rather than preparing themselves for life. And we have a lot of discussions in higher education about uh, the liberal arts and how we're supposed to be preparing people for being active and participative members of our society. There's a, a term called uh, preparing students for a Jeffersonian democracy, and this goes back to Thomas Jefferson and his notions and when he founded the University of Virginia he said that one of the reasons for this was to make sure that we have an educated citizenry so that when people go to town meetings or walk into a polling place and cast a ballot that in fact they're educated and they know something about our democracy and can do that in an informed way. Well students today are much less interested in going to college for that and they're much more focused in going to college for almost the singular purpose of attaining some kind of credential and some kind of skills that will help them in the workforce. And Again, I'm going to give you the caveat that I'm speaking very broadly about what the research shows. This doesn't mean every student is like this. But in general, comparing the generation of students today to that of a generation or two ago, it's very different. Uh, one of the other defining characteristics of students today, and, and I'm mentioning this because this is where I spend most of my research time, is that students today face a much higher price for going to college than uh, we did a generation or two ago. Um, it costs college, uh, co costs a lot more money to go to college today. So for example, uh, back when I was in college, uh, if you looked at the average family in the country, that, the, that family had an income right at the median for the country. Uh, and if they wanted to send their student to the average public four-year university, it would take about 12% of their income to pay for one year. Today, it's more than double that. It's over 25% of their income to pay for college at a typical public. Now, that's a public university, not one of the expensive private universities. Let me add, does anybody know what the most expensive public university in the country is? Does anybody know off the top of their heads? Yeah, you're looking right at us, right down the road here. Penn State University Park is the most expensive public university in the country. Pennsylvania residents pay this year about $14,500 tuition with room and board and books and uh, transportation expenses, a few beers on a weekend, which I hear they do here. Um, you're talking at about $24,000, $25,000 a year. If you're from outside Pennsylvania, it's an extra $10,000. Um, 
those of us who work here at Penn State, particularly people like myself who do research in college access, are not particularly proud of that fact. Uh, if you went back 10 years, we were in the top 10, but not the most expensive public university. But because of the shortage of funds from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we today have found ourselves being the most expensive public university in the country. Um, and that has affected the kinds of students who come here. If you take a look at the data on who's enrolling here at Penn State, particularly at University Park, we have a student body that is much more skewed towards higher income students today than it was eight years ago when I first came to Penn State, and certainly much more than a uh, whole generation ago when Penn State was much more accessible to typical students. So what does this mean for students? Well, students have to pay more money. Um, more and more of them are borrowing money, and this is now not just at Penn State, but across the country. Uh, well over half of students borrow at some point during their college careers. Students finishing bachelor's degree graduate today with an average debt, and again, this is just the average, of about $25,000 that they have to pay back. Uh, some students, it's not unusual uh, for students to be graduating with over $50,000 of debt, particularly if they had attended a more expensive private university. So students are much more reliant on borrowing to go to college. That means that they are having to pay back student loans, which we know from the research has an impact on their lives in terms of can they borrow money to buy a car, uh, there's some anecdotal evidence that people uh, delay when they get married because of concerns about debt. Uh, I guess the message there is when you're dating somebody, ask for an income and a balance sheet before you get too far in uh, the relationship with them. Um, However, in saying all that and all of the focus on expensive private universities and the most expensive private universities in the country next fall will be charging over $50,000 a year, uh, over more than twice what we're charging here at Penn State. But with all of that focus, we shouldn't lose track of the fact that, uh, again, the vast majority of students, about 80% attend public universities. Uh, the average cost, including room and board, this year at a public university was less than $20,000 a year, much below the $50,000. And again, 40 2% of students are attending community colleges, where the average cost is well below $15,000 a year. So there's a lot of focus in the media on the most expensive universities, those, as I said, charging over $50,000 a year. But that's not at all typical. Those students attending those universities represent a very small proportion of all the college students. But yet, that's where a lot of the media focus is. Well, in addition to paying higher prices, these students uh, are also facing uh, admissions that is much more competitive. Uh, it's much harder to get into many universities today than it was a generation ago. Uh, many of my friends and I joke that we would never have gotten into our uh, undergraduate alma maters if we were applying today with the same credentials we had 30 years ago because those institutions have gotten much more competitive. Even Penn State, which is a public land-grant university, and a land-grant university has a particular mission of focusing on access to higher education for citizens of the state uh, of, in this case, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Even at Penn State, we've become much more selective. And we tend, we like to trumpet these things. First of all, being more selective helps us in things like the US News and World Report rankings, uh, helps us look like a more prestigious institution. But the downside of that, it means that, particularly if from a, a minority or a low-income family in Pennsylvania, it's much harder for your child to come get admitted here to Penn State University Park and then be able to afford to pay the tuition. And the downside of that, of becoming more selective, is that we're becoming much less accessible for those kinds of students here in Pennsylvania. And the same thing is happening across the country. Uh, many of the most elite institutions happily announced in the last few weeks that they accepted less than 1 in 15 of the students who applied for admission. It's not nearly that bad here at Penn State, but at many universities, those are the numbers. And they trumpet those numbers very proudly. Um, OK, so 
now we're going to talk about this question that was posed in the title of the talk, which is uh, how are we coping with these 21st century students? How are we doing in higher education dealing with these students who are multitaskers and attached to their technology and have their parents hovering over them? Ho hovering over them? Um, well, in some ways, I think we've made adaptations and we're doing pretty, pretty well, and I'll, I'll highlight some of those for you. And then I'll highlight the areas where I think we still have a lot of work to do. Well, one of the things we've done is we've spent a lot of time and, more importantly, a lot of money infusing technology into the typical undergraduate experience. So if you were an undergraduate at Penn State today, uh, on pretty much a regular basis, you would find yourself using a computer, uh, very often your own laptop computer and sometimes a computer lab, but you would find yourself on ANGEL, which is Penn State's course management system. And the vast majority of courses today at Penn State use this course management system where we do everything from post notes or hold, hold interactive chats with our students, uh, post materials for the classes and readings for the classes, and that's become ubiquitous in higher education throughout the country is the use of technology, uh, mediated technology for learning. Um, wireless networks are everywhere. I mean, most of, the, most of the buildings here at Penn State have been wired now, and uh, students can walk in with their laptops or their iPods or their iPads or their iPhones and now connect to a network and be able to access the internet and get information from anywhere, almost anywhere on campus, often just sitting outside. You can sit outside many of our buildings and be able to access the internet. Uh, Web-based distance learning. Uh, Penn State has one of the nation's largest distance learning uh, centers in the world campus where there are, last figures I saw, over 50,000 students taking courses via distance education, usually uh, over the internet. Uh, and that's been uh, an opportunity for us to provide a Penn State education to students, uh, not just around the country, but around the world. One of the trends we're seeing is that some universities are now requiring students to have particular forms of technology when they enter as freshmen. So already two universities have announced that they they are going to uh, give students iPads. Uh, and it sounds like a, a great benefit of going to college there, but of course the cost of that iPad gets rolled into the tuition cost, so you don't get anything for free, but they have now said they're going to be giving students iPads. When the iPods first came out, we saw a number of universities announce the same thing, that they were going to be giving students iPods and they would be used um, throughout their education. Well, another challenge that we have tried to meet in higher education in dealing with these 21st century students and the diversity of these students that I told you about is dealing with students that have very different kinds of needs. So for example, if you go back a couple generations, it would be difficult to find students who were learning disabled or severely learning disabled on college campuses. They were often just told, you can't come, or they would have to go to a specialized institution. Today, almost every college campus has services specifically for students who are learning disabled or have other physical disabilities. Dealing with adult students, as I said, uh, almost a third of students are uh, over the age of 25, and services for students who may be working full-time uh, and want to have an opportunity to take higher education. Uh, distance learners, for example, services for distance learners, part-time students. Okay. Let me wrap up by saying here's where I'll be critical and I think that we're not doing nearly as good a job in dealing with these 21st century students, whether they be adult students or the more typical traditional age millennial students. And, and again, I'm speaking very broadly. There are universities that I think have done very good work in certain areas, but in general, looking across the breadth of higher education, here are the areas where I think that we haven't done as good a job. The first of which, and this is one that's near and dear to my heart and my research, is we have done a lousy job controlling the growth in the cost of higher education. Higher education prices in this country have gone up at more than twice the rate of inflation for three decades now. 
And this is what's driven higher education to be much less affordable, much less accessible. And if we don't come to grips with ways of controlling that, we are going to find more and more students being priced out of going to college. Even if they are academically eligible, they're going to find they won't be able to afford to go to college if the trends continue. Um, we haven't done a very good job of making the case to both the state and federal governments for public funding of higher education. You know, the emphasis, as I said, is on students going to college to earn uh, a credential and earn some skills that's going to be rewarded in labor markets. And you know what? Policymakers have re responded to that, and they said, well, if the reason people go to college is primarily to earn more money when they're in the workforce, then they ought to pay for the cost of college. And that is true, but that still leaves us with the problem of what do we do with people who can't afford to pay those costs throughout those four years before they're out there in the labor market earning those returns. We could do a better job of that. Even though, as I said, we've done a lot of work in infusing technology into higher education, uh, I don't think we've done as good a job as we can in making sure that the technology is truly integrated in with the learning and teaching. So I gave you the example of the iPods and the universities that get, gave iPods to students. They had grand visions of being able to use those and integrate those into the courses. And with few exceptions, a few exceptions, what most of those found is that the faculty didn't know how to really use those and integrate those into the courses. And they became nothing more than a music device for students. Um, I don't think we've done a good job of figuring out um, how to cater to students uh, and, and, and getting them to change their behaviors rather than just accepting the fact that, well, they're multitaskers, they have short attention spans, they like their technology, so we're just going to have to try to figure out a way to meet those needs. When, in fact, there's very good research that shows that students who are multitasking don't do as well at any one of those tasks as if they concentrated on just one or even two of those. So we sort of accept that, well, this generation is used to multitasking, so we're going to create and structure our education that way. But yet, as I said, there's good research to show that students Students don't learn effectively when they're not concentrating on something. So I think we could do more to try to get students focused and try to get them away from multitasking. Um, and yet, we haven't figured out a good way to do that. Um, I think another area, and, and this will be the last one I'll talk about, is um, helping students understand what institutional fit means. So when somebody is graduating from high school and they're trying to figure out what's the best university or what's a good university for them, there's a lot of focus now, and we in higher education really are a fault for a lot of this. There's a lot of focus on trumpeting things like where a university stands in the US News and World Report rankings, or we've got the nicest dorms, or very often you will see in the literature discussions about climbing walls, about who has the nicest climbing walls. And I have no clue how this became the amenity that the media focuses on, but the media likes to focus on who has the best climbing walls. And we've gotten the message out there to students about these are the kinds of things they ought to look at. And we've done a less good job, I think, on getting students thinking about academically what's the best fit for them. So if you take a tour across a college campus, that you'll see all of these, these, these kinds of things trumpeted, where they stand in the rankings and the dorms and the new buildings and the nice fields and the football teams. We spend a lot less time talking to students about what it means to be a student in our classrooms. Are you better in a place that has big 600-person lectures for Psych 101? Or are you going to be better off learning in a place that has small classes. And I think we in higher education could focus more on our recruiting of students on those kinds of things rather than looking at it as a marketing exercise and how can we get the most students to apply so that we can have the lowest acceptance rate and look like a more selective and more prestigious institution. And that's not easy to do because we are in a very competitive marketplace. We here at Penn State are competing for students with many other universities out there and we of course want to get the best students. It's not just a matter of looking better in the rankings but it also having better students keeps the faculty happy. 
uh, engages people, has better discussions in the classroom. Those are the things we want to do. But we want to make sure we get students who are going to come here and be successful in our environment, which is different, for example, from Lock Haven up the street or Juniata College south of here. So we need to do a better job, I think, when we're recruiting students about what the right fit is for that student. So I will stop here. Thank you very much. And I'm more than interested to hear your questions and also to hear your pushback on any of the generalizations that I've made about students. So Our, again, thank you very much. <laughs> Our attendees aren't shy. <laughs> Thanks, Mud. So I'm, yep. I'm betting that, um, that we have some questions out here for you. And um, just a reminder that I'll repeat your question uh, so that it's um, loud enough on our audio podcast, okay? We have a question over here. Yeah, I actually have two of them. One, uh, back when we were applying to college, a smaller percentage of the high school class went to college. Right. So now it's a much bigger group. Do you think that has led to so many more not getting through the years? Yeah. And if they were all looking for a... a a job, is there enough jobs for them even to get there? Yep. And the second one, which maybe not quite what you said, but I'm just kind of curious, um, that the change in, I'll call it the, the behavior style, where they focus on themselves and they do certain things, what brought that on? That's usually something either they learn at home or something maybe in their high school or junior high. And if it is, how did it come across the whole country at the same time? Yeah. Let me, let me take your first question because I think I can answer that one. Um, yeah, you know, if, if you go back to the, um, to the 1960s, and back in the 1960s, about 40% of students graduating high school enrolled in college. Now we're about two-thirds. And we've been in about two-thirds for over a decade now, so we've sort of leveled off. And we have one of the highest rates of transitions from secondary school to college in the country. Uh, excuse me, in the whole world. We have about the highest rate in the whole world. The flip side of that is because we have more students coming into higher education, we have fewer students who persist through and do get a degree. I mean, if you think about sort of, you know, a ranking of all the students in the country, you know, all the, the roughly 3 million students who graduate from high school, and you rank them from the highest achieving to the lowest achieving. Well, back in the 1960s, we had the, you know, roughly the top 40% or so of students. We've now gone down that hierarchy to the top two-thirds of students. And those students down here who a couple generations ago wouldn't have gone to college, today are going to college, are not as academically prepared. So it makes all the sense in the world that in fact they would struggle on getting through college and getting a degree. Some have argued that a lot of those students shouldn't be in college. Uh, and, and there may be some validity to that. I think a better way of describing it is that a lot of those students aren't in the right college. A lot of those students perhaps went to a four-year university and struggled and would have been better off at a community college in a shorter-term program. So that is absolutely the flip side of getting more students in, is that we are going to have lower completion rates and longer times to degree because we're bringing in students, in many cases, who are less academically prepared in high school. The, the, your second question about where do students get this from, I, I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist, so I really don't know. I, I don't know what the basis of that. I guess we could blame the parents. That's easy, you know, that's easy enough to do. But um, I really don't know where that comes from. But when you look at the survey data, it's been a fairly consistent pattern that students are moving more and more in the direction of being more concerned about themselves and less about society. I mean, you know, some of this, I think, reflects broader societal trends. Uh, you know, I think some of the partisan debates going on in the country today are reflective of that orientation also. And again, I'm, I'm speaking broadly in generalizations. I mean, you can walk across this campus and the other campus and find students who are very engaged in social movements and very 
engaged in um, uh, trying to do good work that's not just for themselves but for others. So you know that that's the caveat here. But in general, that's the direction the survey data show us. We have a question over here. The question, if I'm understanding, is uh, how do universities justify, in a sense, the the kinds of majors and emphases uh, that they have when um, students graduate, perhaps ill-prepared for for the workplace, for the practical realities of the workplace? Okay. Well, you know, some people, Denise, would argue that you know, sports management or fitness might be better training for the workforce than philosophy or English. So we could have a very long and spirited debate about you know which of the majors that are better in terms of preparing people for the workforce. But I think you know to answer your question about why do we in higher education and and let me be clear, I am not speaking for Penn State here. I am speaking as an individual faculty member. I'm all, always careful to say that. But you know, higher education operates as a market, even though we have very strong government intervention in this market. We allow a huge amount of student choice. So, for example, at Penn State, we have you know general education requirements that all students have to fulfill. You can't just come in, uh, unlike, for example, the British system, where when you go to university, you study your subject for three years and that's it. You know, you study psychology or economics or pre-law or whatever. Well, here, like at most universities, we have general education requirements, and students, particularly in their first two years, have to do a smattering of courses in the social sciences and the arts and the hard sciences, etc. Um, well, we allow students a huge degree of latitude and choice in what kinds of courses they want to take there. And then we do the same thing with majors. Um, you know, I should know this figure because I've been looking at uh, some data, but we have, uh, you know, well over 100 undergraduate majors, I believe, at Penn State. And if students want to come here and pay us $25,000 a year or $35,000 a year from out of state, as long as we're comfortable that we're providing a quality education, and I think every department would say and every program would say that they are, uh, who are we to say, no, you, you know, you can't spend $100,000 on a degree in sports management. So, you know, we're responding to the markets and what students want to do. Um, and again, I think it's important to say that we want to make sure we're providing them with a quality education and not just taking their money and running away with it. Um, but I, I feel comfortable saying that Penn State does that, and I think most universities would, would argue the same thing, that if students want to major in that, even though there might not be great job prospects out there for a degree and whatever, we're not the ones who say, no, you can't do it. And we shouldn't be the ones who say, no, you can't do it. We, we did have a question previously. What are the ways that we assess where individual students yeah. should go and what, what colleges would be the best fit for them? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good question, Marita, because there's a balance you want to strike. You know, you don't want eighth and ninth graders starting to stress out about college admissions already. And we know a lot of them do it already, okay? So you don't want these kids already stressing out about it when they're only 14 or 15 years old. On the other hand, the reality is that in the college admissions game today is that if, you know, you know you want to go to a particular kind of institution, you've got to start thinking about that early enough in your high school career to take the right courses you can take to get into that institution. So for example, if Penn State requires somebody to have three years of laboratory science as a hurdle to get into Penn State, well then you better damn well make sure you've had three years of laboratory science in high school. And if there's a foreign language requirement for a university you want to go to, then you've got to make sure you do that in high school. So you know, in those kinds of things, particularly with respect to course taking, you want to encourage students to think about that fairly early on. Um, in terms of the fit about what kind of institution, I think that can happen a little bit later. The kinds of things you want to talk about students with when they're in high school is, you know, how do you learn? 
you know, do you learn best, um, you know, by sitting at your laptop and reading something while you're watching TV? And, you know, and not that a 16 or 17 year old is the best person to judge that, but thinking about those kinds of things. Uh, if you were in a, a 600 person lecture hall, you know, do you think you'd be able to keep up and stay engaged as opposed to being in a 25 person discussion class for Psych 101 or Political Science 101? So really talking to students about what their ways of learning are, what their learning styles are, what they want to do when they go to college, rather than getting caught up in all the other kinds of things that we tend to market to them. And you know, there is a very clear difference between uh, an education here at Penn State and an education at Bucknell. They're very different kinds of institutions. They're both very good educations, and I feel comfortable saying that. But they're very different, and students ought to understand what that difference is before they apply to one or the other. And I think, and, and I think the, the research bears this out, is that students don't spend all that much time thinking about it. I'll, I'll tell you that you know, the stories I get from parents, and I, and I get a lot of parents talking to me because they have kids who are you know, getting ready to look at colleges. And boy, if I had a nickel for every parent who said to me that one of the reasons their, their child decided to apply to the school because they thought the tour guide was cute or hot. I could, I would be a rich man. And you know, as a quantitative researcher, I'll be the first one to tell you that's an anecdote. But as one of my mentors said to me, you know, two anecdotes equal data. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and really getting students to think about what is an education at Bucknell or Juniata going to be like when I'm in the classroom compared to when I'm at a Penn State or a University of Michigan or whatever. Yeah. We had a question. Um, Right here, yes. The community college will refund tuition if you don't get a job after yeah. graduation. So wondering if that's a trend, perhaps. And then how is technology changing the life of residential students? Yeah, um, yeah. and besides uh, this community college that says that they'll um, refund the students' money, there's been a broader trend of colleges that have said, if you don't get a, a, a job in your field you know, within a year of graduating, you can come back and take more classes for free. So there's been more colleges that have actually done that. The idea being, you know, we'll help you upgrade your skills for free if you haven't gotten a job after four years and $100,000 or whatever else. We'll give you more classes, you know. Um, regarding technology, yeah, and, and the, uh, the data uh, bear out that this is the same trend that's happening across the country, that those institutions that have large distance learning arms, what they're finding is that a good proportion of students in those internet-based classes are actually their own residential students who are choosing to take the classes um, through internet-based education, whether they believe it's because it's better schedule fit for them or they think it's going to be a better mode of learning for them. Whatever the reason is, this is a trend throughout higher education that even though these a lot of these um, uh, functions were set up to try to meet the needs of adult learners, part-time people who couldn't make it to class. Well, in fact, it's the resident students who are doing it. And I, I have some concerns about it. And you know, just like in regular face-to-face -face education in the classroom, we have good classes and good teachers, and we have some that are not so good classes and not so good teachers. And the same is true with distance education. I think I've seen some classes that are very good and very well structured, structured and very well organized, and I've seen some that are much less so. And I think the concern about the distance education is that sometimes students aren't able to judge the quality and whether the course is going to be good for them with a distance course as easily as they can with a face-to-face -face course. So that would be my only concern about moving more and more students, resident students, to the world campus or other forms of internet-based learning. We had a question over here from this gentleman. Um, yes. The comment is that, um, Don, you had uh, made the point that college is trending towards 57% female in general in the country, but that uh, Penn State is 55% male. male. So what, yeah. what explains this difference in statistical? 
Three uh, words, engineering, business, and sciences. All areas, and those figures were for University Park, by the way, it's 50%, 55% male. Uh, those are three areas that tend to be still very heavily dominated by male students versus female. Three areas that Penn State happens to be very strong in and also happen to be their large programs. So that's the primary reason why here at UP we buck the trend nationwide, that we're very strong in those areas which disproportionately attract male students. Good question. Um, yes, sir. A statement, I guess, we comment on it, uh, and that is this electronic communication system that the new students, the millennial students, have. Uh, is there not a concern about them being able to sit face to face across a desk and talk to people when they get out of here? Yeah, the, with the millennial students' interest in uh, using technology for their education, are they losing the value of face to face communication? Yeah. Did, did you hear the same NPR story this morning or yesterday afternoon? That's, I, I heard a story at NPR about that, talking about um, you know, some employers are concerned that you know, students today who are much more comfortable texting or you know, IMing, that when they get out there in the workforce where they're going to have to deal with people face to face, and you know, unless they get a job as a customer service operator in, in, in Mumbai, you know, that otherwise in, in a lot of jobs that college graduates get, you've got to interact with people on a daily basis, you've got to work in teams, and you're doing a lot of this interaction face to face not via IMing or texting. So there have been some concerns raised about this generation of whether they're going to have those kinds of interpersonal skills that employers are going to be looking for um, when the students haven't spent as much time doing that. And I think that you know, for those of us who are teaching, um, I, you know, I know this is something that I'm very sensitive to. And, and I, in fact, in my classes, try to make sure that even though we use technology in my classes, that we, in fact, spend a lot of time doing things like working in teams where students are working face to face, sitting around a table or um, uh, doing mock presentations where they're having to be standing up and talking to a crowd in front of that because in my field that's an important part of many of our students' jobs. So I think as faculty there are things we can do to try to counter that trend. But it's difficult because, you know, we, if a student's taking, you know, four courses a semester, we're, they're only in our classroom for 12 hours a week. That's the rest of the week then that they're out there, you know, doing the rest of their lives where they might not be having that kind of interaction. So there's only so much we can do in their education to develop those skills in them if they're not also expanding on those in the rest of their lives. Yes, you had a question? Yes. Question and comment about uh, talking to being able to speak to a person face to face with all this technology thing. I'm a Penn State mom. I didn't have a college degree. In fact, I learned English word by word from a dictionary. Yet, beginning as a file clerk, I managed to work myself up to a six-figure income. Why? Because I noticed that when you deal with files all day, there's a lot of information to be gleaned in it. This kind of analytical thinking, likewise from the male point, some of you will remember, some of the most successful business people began in the mail room. The mailroom, there were always mailroom boys, never a mailroom girl. Okay. Okay. Well, Don, I think the comment was about practical life skills and the difference in uh, the generations in the past where uh, young people had perhaps more more practical um, sense, common sense skills than they do today. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, you know, that's, that's certainly uh, not something we teach at Penn State. Um, you know, when you go to the schedule of courses and you look at all the departments, you won't find the Department of Common Sense. So I'm not sure, you know, how, how we can address that. I, I think that there are lots of programs that Student Affairs puts on, for example, um, that address the developmental needs of students. And, you know, again, Penn State University Park is primarily a traditional campus in that most of our undergraduates are, you know, transitioning from high school or shortly after, and they're still fairly young, and they're still very much developed into adulthood. And I think our student affairs um, professionals would tell you that they do put on programs to try to help students develop some of those skills of navigating through life and the kinds of things you need to have when you are out there on your own and you're no longer in the warm, cozy environment of Penn State um, to be successful in life. And you know, the reality is that students are only going to get out of that um, what they put into it. So if a student comes here and, you know, through four years, doesn't participate in any of those kinds of programs, whether it's through the residence halls or through clubs or student affairs, then they might not gain any of that. And in fact, they may graduate from here. Uh, even, you know, some may go on and get higher degrees, uh, graduate degrees, um, without having developed some of that common sense we would expect people to have. Uh, okay. The question was, is there any urgency on Penn State's part to solve the problem of rising tuition costs and how that impacts, uh, negatively impacts poor and minority students? Yeah, let, let me say first of all, I, I, I don't, if, I, if I said this, I didn't mean to imply that we are failing to serve those students. And, and if I said that, I would be, and it got out there, I'd very quickly hear from the president or provost about that. We don't serve those students nearly as well and as many of them as we have in the past. And that is a problem, and um, our administration will tell you that it is directly related to um, a couple of things. First of all, the rise in costs. Uh, and Penn State has gotten more expensive. And compared to many of our peers, we don't have the amount of institutional financial aid, grants, and scholarships that many of the universities that we're competing with do. So for example, if you take the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, they implemented a program five years ago called the Carolina Covenant. And if you're a student from a family with an income below about $50,000 a year, they will guarantee that you can go to UNC Chapel Hill without having to pay a dime and without having to borrow anything. We can't do that here at Penn State for a number of reasons. First of all, we are more expensive than UNC Chapel Hill is. Secondly, we're a much larger university. I think UNC Chapel Hill is under 20,000 students. We have 38, 37,000 undergraduates here at UP alone. Um, so we simply don't have the resources to be able to say to poor students, for example, if you come here, we can, we can guarantee that you won't have to pay a dime or, or only borrow minimal amounts. Okay, that's the first piece. And but I will say in response to that, in response to that, um, this weekend the university is going to be kicking off the campaign for the future. Um, and the, the right hand side of the colon in that is for the students. And the primary focus and the primary goal on the, on, in the campaign is student support. Through for scholarships. So I think certainly the Board of Trustees has recognized this. Uh, six, seven years ago, they created something called the Trustee Scholarship Program, which is focused on financially needy students. Uh, and I think the fact that they've made student support the primary goal of the campaign, rather than buildings or endowed chairs, is a statement that the, the board, frankly, and the leadership of the university recognize how a Penn State education has gotten much less affordable. Let me just say the other side of it is, as we've become more selective, it's harder for a poor or minority student to qualify for admission here, frankly. They're the ones who get pushed out as we accept have become more selective and our SAT, average SAT scores have risen. It's the poor minority students who are less likely to be admitted here even if they could afford to come. We have time for one more question. Anybody on this side of the room? Yes.
What is driving the uh, the rise in college costs? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Chuck. Uh, uh, Saturday morning, 9 o'clock at the Penn Stater, Anna Griswold and I, Anna is the executive director of student aid here at Penn State, are doing um, a session as part of the kickoff of the campaign uh, that is titled Why College is So Expensive and What Penn State is Doing About It. And in that presentation, I have a slide with the top 10 reasons about why those prices have been going up so rapidly. Um, so feel free to come to that presentation. But if you can't make it, I. If you can't make it, I'd be happy to send you the slides. And, you know. Sure. I mean, you know, a couple of things. First of all, uh, higher education is a very labor-intensive industry. Uh, you know, even with all of the things I've talked about with technology, for the most part, we teach the same way that we did when Harvard was founded in 1636, and that's one of us standing up with a bunch of you sitting out there. We haven't changed that structure and that model very much at all. Now, we do have large lectures and things, but we haven't found a way to substitute capital for labor in the higher education industry like much of the rest of the uh, economy has in our country. So if you think about the way, for example, that capital has been used, most recently technology, and how it's changed certain sectors of our economy, we haven't done any of that in higher education. Yes, we have technology, but it's become an additional cost. It hasn't increased our productivity, with very few exceptions. So if the rest of the economy is finding a way to be more productive with labor, and we're not, then our labor productivity is going to be going down relative to the rest of the uh, economy. The second reason is not only we labor intensive, it is relatively high skilled and expensive labor compared to the rest of the economy. It's not just the faculty, it's not just the administrators, it's also for example that even among uh, service and crafts people in universities they're much more likely to be unionized and therefore higher wage and higher benefits than are most of the other sectors of the economy. So all of those labor issues um, have gone into the cost side of the equation. The other reason that we've been able to raise prices the way we have is if you remember back to Economics 101, if you took microeconomics, there's two kinds of inflation. There's cost push, which is what I just described to you, and there's demand pull inflation. And the reason we've been able to raise prices the way we have is because the demand for higher education has been increasing. As I said, more and more students want to go to college. They've gotten the message about the importance of a college degree in labor markets. In the absence of that increased demand, there's no way we would have been able to increase prices the way we have without having hundreds of universities closing. So we've had that cover of increasing, increasing demand that's allowed us to increase prices because of the increased costs. So those are the, the top three, and you can come on Saturday to hear the other seven if you're interested. So, again, thank you very much for your attention we're out and of questions. Time, but thank you. Join me in thanking Don, and we have a research oh. unplugged mug for you. And I think you lived thank up you. to the PR of making this both <laughs> interesting and exciting.